Luke chapter 12. Actually, we do begin at the latter part of chapter 11, where we left off last week. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Ladies, if you would, just hit the pause button on honor for moms. We love you. Mom, you're watching home. I love you. This day is about rejoicing in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. think about through the years coming to this church and uh, when we when we first planted it my little children were babies I'm standing up here in the front row my son is here my daughter is is here and, and I hear him singing behind me he was just screaming like a baby when we first started the church now he's back there carrying a tune and and he's a good man and my my daughter is a fine woman and uh Went out and greeted Kelly today, and the last time I saw Kelly's little daughter, she was just a little daughter. I thought Kelly brought her friend today. It's her daughter, and uh, she's a grown woman. It's, uh, we've seen some people go through the years. Some have grown into moms. Um, it's been a wonderful experience to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ anywhere you are, if it's one that honors Christ. So maybe today, ask yourself, do I honor Christ? We as Christians like to think we do, but do we? There's a whole faction out there called hypocrites. And Jesus gives some, some uh, intense warning of who these folks are and what they do. We are in the context in Luke chapter 11 of what I would call a very heated discussion. Jesus has cast out a demon and been accused of, of doing so by the power of Beelzebul or of Satan himself. Jesus the Son of God, God in flesh, performing a miracle and being accused of doing so by the power of the devil. Is there a worse thing? I tell you folks, there is no worse thing. And Jesus will talk about that in the blasphemy of the Spirit here in verse 10. So it all comes together. It's one big context. Jesus has taken it upon himself to, to pronounce woes upon the Pharisees and, and the scribes. And these are essentially the... the um, religionists of the day. I, I put on here, I was glad that Julie could get it on the, the bulletin here. It's, it's in small print. You need your readers, no doubt. Just an intro, introduction of what Jesus has been going through here, what he's condemning. These people know Jesus to be the Son of God, and yet they, they don't want him as the Son of God. They don't like him. Well, that's pretty common. There's many people that don't like Jesus. In fact, we would say the majority of people on the planet don't like Jesus. They don't know why they don't like him. But at the very least, it's because he convicts them of sin. And that's what Jesus has done here. He's not hidden at all his, his contempt for their way of life, for their religion. He, he, I want you to picture it like this, is that Jesus has, has gone to this man's home, this Pharisee's home. It says in verse 37 of chapter 11, Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. Jesus didn't wash his hands, and the guy thought that Jesus was some really bad guy. Now, it wasn't that he had, that it's just, you know, like your grandmother made you do, wash your hands before your meal. It was about a, a religious ritual. Some thought that if you didn't wash your hands, you couldn't be saved. Some thought that if you did wash your hands, you were actually saved. That's what saved you. But wash your hands. Make sure the water runs through your knuckles and down your wrist the proper way, and then you're okay to eat. Jesus said this. <laughs> that was just to wake you up in case you went to sleep early. Jesus, essentially, that's what he said. No. He said, you Pharisees, you've got all these rules and regulations. And he begins to denounce them. So think about it. He's at this guy's house for lunch. There's other scribes and Pharisees there. And then there's his followers. They're probably hanging out outside the house, listening intently perhaps through the window. And Jesus gets, um, he doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry. Let me wash my hands so as not to offend. He goes ahead and makes it a big deal. 
And so he starts giving them. He tells them, everything that's inside of you, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of death. Dead men's bones. You're like graves that have been whitewashed, he says. You tithe a little bit here, and you do all the right things, but inside, there's no heart for God. There's no love for God, nor his people. So imagine it, he's having lunch, and he turns his focus from the Pharisees, not talking behind their back, talking with them present to his disciples. That would be like me if this side of the church decided to say, we're done with you, Lance, but we got to sit tight. I might look over to this side of the church, which is clearly the more holy side, and I would say, these people over here, they're a bunch of schmoes. They're a bunch of bunch of losers, and they don't know what the heck they're talking about. So I would be talking about them in front of them with them at my peripheral. That's what Jesus is doing in this context with the Pharisees. Note that. He's not, he hasn't dismissed them and said, okay, I'll go home and go talk to my disciples and shake my head and go, those people are so sad. No, he says it in front of them. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. One of the lawyers in verse 45 says, you're, you're offending us too. Jesus said, oh. Well, let me turn up the heat a notch. So he begins to offend them more. So I just kind of put this together in that introductory point there. Religion is, is bold-faced and relationship with God because I've told you, we're not after a religion. We're not religious people as Christians. We simply have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He did everything we need to do. We don't need to do anything. Religion says do this and do that and you can make yourself right with God. No. That's false teaching. Don't ever buy into that. You might have been a religionist before you came to know Christ, and you, you know what I'm talking about. You left it behind. Maybe you're visiting today, and you're still steeped in religion. Please, put all the religious stuff aside. You cannot please God by giving Him your 10%, 50%, 80%. You can't please God if you give Him 100% of your income, 100% of your time. You will never please God. Why? You killed His Son. And when you kill the Son of God, there's nothing you can do to make up for that. If you killed my son or daughter, you could not do anything to make up for it. No amount of money could ever cause me to forgive you. The only way I could ever forgive you, if you killed my son or daughter, is by deciding to do so. By grace. By grace, I'm going to forgive you. You can't pay me enough to make me forgive you. I choose to forgive you. And that's what God has done. And so he puts together, if you're in religion, you're steeped in ceremonies, ceremonies, ceremonies. Oh, we love the Catholic Church. It's so beautiful. We love the Greek Orthodox Church. It's so ornate. It is full of idols and idolatry. Strict tithing. I must give my 10%. Some folks, even uh, in some churches, you'll see it on the giving record. They're, they're giving, their monthly giving $808.32. That's okay, but my encouragement, round it up. Just round it up. Go ahead and do the $810 and see if you don't miss that $2.32. But it's, it's, it's okay, you may have done it. You're an engineer, no doubt, or an accountant, and that's, there's nothing sinful about that. You've just done your budget to where it all reconciles down to the penny because you like that. It's not a sin, but go ahead and round it up. Or round it down, just make it clean. Jesus is saying for those who strictly give, here's what I give, 10%, my 15%, whatever it is, neglect of love, I did this, I did that, I did it. Not seeing the heart of love, and yet a relationship with Christ is a heart overflowing. I'm not gonna give $808, I'm gonna give a full $1,000. and see. I'm gonna make it hurt a little bit more and see what blessing comes along to someone else, maybe perhaps me. 
Being in a religion is striving for top level of service, especially if you're in ministry. You can be a pastor, be a minister of some sort. You want to ascend to this high level of greatness and people calling you your magnificence and your highness and whatever else. No. Striving for top level service. In a relationship with Christ, you're content to be a nobody and be called by your first name. That's it. If you're a religionist, you are outwardly pious. Outwardly pious, always looking like you're doing the right thing, saying the right thing, and yet by teaching others the same thing or trying to model great behavior and looking good all the time, you're actually causing others to stumble. You're not real. People don't like phoniness. I don't know why they follow those preachers. One with a relationship with Christ is inwardly righteous and preaching love. Not doing and not doing. Staying away, not touching. Religionists invent their own ways to be holy outside of Scripture. We don't do this. We don't touch that. We don't go here. We go there. Wherever there and here might be or its might be. And yet those who are in a relationship with Christ simply want to know and obey Scripture. Not interested in all the little silly things that people do and don't do. I want to know what God wants. I want to know what God makes God happy. What pleases my Lord? Obeying Scripture. That's not religion. Obeying Scripture is simply doing what God would have us do. Because He's died for us. He's taken our sins away. Uh, Religion is about honoring all the wrong people. Bowing. Again, the names. That's what he says in verses 47 to 50. And yet, we bow the knee to no one except Christ alone. And we bow the knee to our governing leaders because Christ told us to. Religionists are hindering others from entering heaven, Jesus said in 1152. And yet, those with a relationship, in a relationship with God through Christ, are showing people the way to salvation in Christ alone. Some hinder, religionists hinder a relationship with God because they teach people if you'll do this and you'll do that, you'll say this and you'll say this little chant and this little prayer. In the middle of your day, say these prayers. At the end of your day, say those prayers. Give this amount of money. Come to church this many times. Call the pastor, the reverend, brother, doctor, and give great great credence to him or her in some cases. You'll be holy. No, no. No, you won't. You'll be a religionist. That's where Jesus is going. That's what he's told them. He's made this very clear. He is not holding back his disdain for religion at the end of chapter 11. And so he says, as we left off last week, he says in verse 52, Woe to you, and he's speaking to the scribes, the lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge. These are the ones that are supposed to give people the key of knowledge. They've taken it away. You yourselves did not enter. You hindered hindered those who were entering. Now, as you can imagine, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. He's made them mad. He didn't mind making them mad. In fact, he angered them on purpose. So they're ganging up. We've got to ask him more questions. 54, they're plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Chapter 12, verse 1, under these circumstances, do these sound like calm, peaceful circumstances to you? This is intense. Jesus has put himself here for a reason. I say you and I as Christians should do that more ourselves. We live in a day to speak out. We ought to speak out more. Not for the sake of of claiming a political view. We're not political at this church. If our views line up with some politician, okay. We're not here to promote any political affiliation or non-affiliation. We want to preach Christ and Christ Christ crucified. That's the goal, to follow Jesus Christ. Whatever political path that leads you down, great. 
But following Christ is what matters. Under these circumstances, these intense, hot circumstances, Jesus stood up and boldly told the truth, which in this case was, you guys are messed up. You guys are religionists. You follow all these rules and you're preventing not only yourselves but others from entering into eternity, into eternal life. They're going to enter eternity. It's just going to be eternal death. Under these circumstances, note this, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, the word for thousands in Greek is myriad. It's the biggest Greek number and it means 10,000. They had no number for anything bigger than 10,000. So just make it a plural word, and it's 10,000s of 10,000s of 10,000s. Perhaps Luke is using this word literally. There are 10,000 people there. Or maybe he's just using it figuratively as a really large number. But note, there are many people gathered together. In spite of all of the hostility toward Jesus, the crowds are still abundant. And they're so large, they're stepping on one another. Sounds like a rock concert, doesn't it? That's probably what it resembled. And he began saying to his disciples. Now, by the way, we don't know when it says his disciples, if he's talking to the 12, because the word disciples means a follower. A disciple means a follower, a follower, someone who follows Jesus. It doesn't mean they're committed necessarily. We know many people followed Jesus. At the end of John chapter 6, it says many of Jesus' disciples were leaving him because his doctrines, his teachings were too strong for them. But the 12, it distinguishes the disciples from the 12. And Jesus looked at the 12 at the end of John 6 and said, you're not going to leave too. Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of life. So disciples are not always talking about the 12, but he's turning to these thousands of people, those following him, and he said, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now again, he's talking about this in front of them. They're yelling at him. They're all trying to get at him under these circumstances. So he's looking at this side of the crowd going, beware of the leaven of these guys. Beware of their hypocrisy. You know what leaven is or, or yeast. You put it in a batch of dough. If you don't put it in dough, you get what? You get a saltine cracker, a flat piece of bread with no rise in it. You put a little bit of, of leaven in it and the whole batch. I mean, you have a batch of dough and a little tiny bit of leaven, it permeates the whole dough and you get sourdough or bread that rises. It ferments it. It's used for, for drinks as well as bread. And Jesus uses it here not to say, hey, don't, don't eat bread with leaven in it. He's saying this, the hypocrisy. And again, I'm going to look at, because you're the righteous group. He's looking at you. He's going, he's saying, look, beware of the wickedness in this group. Their hypocrisy. Because he says their leaven is hypocrisy. Now, a hypocrite in old days used to be somewhat, it was just a name for an actor. An actor is a hypocrite. Why? Because an actor is playing a part that's not him or her. They're playing a part, playing a role. Nothing sinful about being a hypocrite if you're an actor. But in Jesus' context, in the context in which we use it today, it's about looking some way, being some way, I should say, and acting another way. Saying one thing, doing another. We know what hypocrite is. One man says it's conscious insincerity. You're consciously being insincere. People are good at it on Sundays, aren't they? Dress up, they look nice, they talk nice, they get all their foul language away, they don't speak bad in church, they, they greet people, they, they might embrace and say nice things, they go out into the world that afternoon or Monday morning and they're a pit bulldog in business. Or they treat their wives or children, not their wives, maybe they have too, but they we treat their wife their children with disdain, people they know. They, they're bad people. 
They look good one day, they're not good another. And Jesus is saying, that's who these people are. That's who the scribes and Pharisees are. That's who your religious leaders are. And that still fits today. People today, how many people have you met throughout the course of your life? They say, well, I don't go to church. It's a bunch of hypocrites. Sadly, they're right. Just make sure you're not one of them. But then you're thinking, is that possible? It gets more and more possible as you grow in the Lord, does it not? Jesus is saying, beware that little leaven. Your religious leaders are spreading a little bit, and it spreads its hypocrisy. Beware of it. Watch out for it, he's saying. Verse 2, but there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known, that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. That's scary. You know, we see this in government today. We're watching it unfold in our current government. Seems like we watch it unfold in every governmental administration. There's some conspiracy. There's some something hidden that's going to be uncovered. And people that, whose lives are about to be uncovered, um, some of them take their own lives. We've seen that in some of the, the strange people in our society. They know they're about to be caught. Um, there are others who have covered things over quite well. No one knows. No one will ever know until we read this passage. And Jesus is saying that hypocrisy, that's what people hide. Your religious leaders, he's saying, they're hiding who they really are. In Matthew's gospel, he calls them snakes, brood of vipers. And no doubt Jesus would have gotten email after email in that day going, you know, you could have said that a little nicer. He could have, but he didn't. Some things that don't need to be glossed over as nice, just the truth will do. And Jesus is saying here this, this, this solemn warning. Guys, what you're hiding in the dark. He's looked at the, the followers, he looks over here, and he may look at them and go, everything that you people are hiding. I'm sorry. I mean, I know you're all righteous people. Here, but you get the point. I know that, that what you're doing, you might be hiding it from others. But it's going to be exposed. Nothing. Whatever you've said in the dark, going to be heard in the light. I would say ruthlessly spoken in the light. Secrets that we have. Things we're trying to cover up. Things we say about other people. A guy walked up to us one time and, and we were being nice to him. His wife came to church here and, and uh, she brought him to a picnic and she said, and we, we went out of our way to be nice to him. He was a, said he was an atheist and... and uh, me and a couple of the other guys just made it. We bent over backwards to treat the man with, with dignity. And we did. He was a nice guy. He walks up one day at a, at a, at a picnic and, and he, hey, man, what's going on? You know, we sit down with him. We start talking, just making chit-chat, trying to make him feel at home. And he's nice to us. His wife pulled us aside and said, just so you'll know, as we were walking up from the car up to where you were, he was cursing every one of you with the foulest language I've ever heard. But he walks up with a smile. Hey, Lance, good to see you. I actually thought it was good to see, I must have been good to be seen that day. That's a hypocrite. That which is said in the dark, unless you make it right with God now, will be exposed on our day of judgment. And Jesus is speaking, without ever saying the day of judgment, he's speaking of this future time that is coming. People today don't live for that future, they live for the now. How can I be satisfied now? But there's coming a future. There's coming a time when we're going to have to answer for what we've said, what we've done. And Jesus is warning. 
Verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Now, by saying this, he's essentially saying, this group over here, guys, they may try to kill you. You may get in all kinds of trouble by, by not following them. Again, he's saying this in front of them. But he's encouraging them, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. You know, a person that kills you, that's all they can do. They kill you. You're dead. They can, I, I, I'm sorry, I hate to get graphic, but we see it in the news today. People have done it. But to mutilate a body, you know, we see uh, examples of, of some of the, the cult things where, where a body is dead and the things that are done to the body. There's nothing to be sad about. They died when they died. They died when they died. They weren't feeling anything that happened after them. They can only kill the bodies, Jesus said. Once you're dead, you're dead. You feel nothing, not in that body. And Jesus is saying, these guys may kill you. You don't have anything to fear. All they can do is kill you. And you're going to die anyway. Do not be afraid. Because this is a point at which people might be thinking, you know, it's intense here. Those people are angry. They're trying to get Jesus. Under these circumstances, Jesus is just making a matter. If you're a disciple whom Jesus is talking to, you might be thinking, you know what? I'm just going to keep my love for God under wraps. I don't need to go out there and say anything. Jesus is saying, don't make that decision. Don't decide to go incognito from your faith in Christ, then or now. We live in a day today we're going to get persecuted. Have you seen me or heard me tone it down in this church, knowing that my, a sermon from God's Word could be considered hate speech in our society? If you catch me turning it down, slap me. If you let me turn it down, it's your fault too. I'm going to keep the heat turned up. If I end up in jail and they kill me, so be it. That's a great way to go. I'm okay with that. I want to encourage you not to turn it down. We live in a dark world. Turn on that light. You know those light dimmers? You know how you can dim it? Don't dim it. Turn it all the way up. Make it pop at the end. Where it's on bright. Where it's an LED. It won't go off for another 50 years. Jesus is telling them, guys, don't become incognito. Don't be afraid of these people. They'll kill the body. They can't do anything after that. But I will warn you, verse 5, in whom you you are to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed, by the way, it's God who kills, he has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow, a sermon on hell. Telling people to fear God. Don't fear the people that can kill you. Don't fear a terrorist. Don't fear some crazy, insane lunatic that comes into a church with an AK-47. Don't fear that. Don't fear it. Don't let it bother you. Fear the one who has the authority to kill you and put your soul in hell. Now we see here a little split difference between what it means to live in the body and then the soul that lives on afterward. Jesus is warning of that. That soul that lives on, Jesus is saying, watch out. Where he uses the word hell, that Greek word is Gehenna. Comes from the Hebrew word Hinnom, from the valley of Hinnom. It's um, it's right there near Jerusalem. It's It's a ravine right around the city of Jerusalem that was used to burn trash. In fact, two Israelite kings, King Ahaz and King Manasseh, wicked kings in Israel, took their own children and burned them in the fires in this valley. In fact, people would take, if they couldn't afford to to bury their their family members, they would take them to this this ravine and burn them, along with all the other refuse. These were fires that went up all the time. The Valley of Hinnom. Jesus calls it Gehenna in Greek. 
But don't worry, by the way. You know, I, I've been told that there are some preachers that, that have said that, and this is interesting, is that they've said there is no hell. Which is strange because I see it throughout the Bible, but they've said there is no hell because God is love. Because God is love, there can't be hell. For those of you who are asleep, I'm being sarcastic. It is my gift. How can there be no hell when hell is spoken of twice as much in the New Testament as heaven is? Folks, don't believe the people that tell you. Since God is love, there is no hell. God is love and there is a hell. God is love and there is a hell. The Bible speaks of it in the worst of terms. I've heard some, you know, it's it said, it's called the blackest darkness in the book of Jude. The blackest darkness. Yet skeptics have said, well, if it burns with fire, how can it be darkness if it's got fire in it? Well, that presupposes the fact, the possibility that you can't see or you can see. Who says you have eyes in hell? Anyone ever see that? You're going to have 20-20 eyesight in hell. Don't worry. You'll be able to see it all. Maybe it's just the blackest of darkness because everyone there, or I should say no one there, has the ability to see. Ever think about that? Maybe the fires burn so hot they burn black hot. I don't know. But hell is a place Jesus associated it with that place that burns continually, that valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Fear the God who can not only take your life, but cast you into that place. Yes, I tell you, Jesus says, fear him, that extra emphasis. Some of you are going, I came to church today on Mother's Day and this is what I got? (laughs) Yes, you did. Mother's Day isn't in the Bible. The Bible is all about God day. It's all about Christ. That's what it's about. If you somehow, ladies, feel slighted, I give you no apology. I hope that it adjusts your attitude. That the honor of Christ is what it's all about. These are His words. And Jesus' words today for all of us are a stern warning. Don't be like them. Let your faith shine like a light. Light that lamp and put it up on a lampstand. Say what needs to be said. Don't fear these people. They'll kill your body. That's nothing. Fear the one who allows you to die and then takes the soul, which is eternal, and puts it in hell. Fear him. Then he uses this little parable to explain how important each one of us are. Are not five sparrows sold for, sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. It's if to say, God has the power to cast us into hell, but don't fear. You are very valuable to him. This is interesting when you put uh, Matthew and Luke together. Luke says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Matthew 10, 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for one cent? Now, let's check your math. If two sparrows are sold for one cent, how much are four sparrows? Two cents. Luke says five are worth two cents. That means the deal was buy four, get one free. (laughs) It does. If you put them together, that's all it's got to mean. That's how insignificant these birds are. I mean, two for a penny, four for two pennies. I tell you what, throw in another one just for good measure. It's a no-name bird. It's a, it's a bird that only the poor would care to have. 
to eat. And God is saying, yeah, they're sold for not much money. They're they're essentially worthless. And then he says, indeed, you know, I know the sparrows, but the very hairs on your head are numbered. Um, For God to know the number of hairs on each one of our heads, that, that says a lot. Does he mean it literally? Yes. Why wouldn't God know? Would God know everything and go, well, you know, the counting of hairs thing, you know, that was just a metaphor. I'm certain he knows all the numbers of hair on each one's head. For some people, it takes him less time to count those hairs than for others, but he still knows. Indeed, the very heads of of your hairs, hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Up here he said, fear the one who has the power to, to kill you and cast you into hell. You, however, do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Let me, let me emphasize that for a moment. If God cares for a sparrow, which are essentially worthless in the sight of humanity, does he not care all the more about those created in his image? I still don't have the quote, but I've read it before. I mentioned it on Wednesday night. But Charles Spurt, great Baptist preacher in London, he said, you know, the human soul must be very important. It must be extremely valuable because both the devil and God himself are in relentless pursuit of it. If God cares for that sparrow, he cares for you. Do not fear. You have nothing to fear. Fear the one, if you're a hypocrite, the one who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. But you, however, my followers, do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, Jesus says, mind you, this is in the context of all of these religionists and their, their empty religion and how they're telling people that what Jesus does, he does by the power of Satan. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men or before people, before anyone, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. Matthew's gospel says, before my Father who is in heaven. So it's the same thing. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God or before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, guys, once again, if you're thinking of going incognito in your faith, if you're thinking that you don't want the hassle of any persecution because people might know that you're a Christian in the 21st century, If you don't want the hassle of people knowing that you're pro-life because you're pro-Christ, if you don't want anyone to know, Jesus is saying, boldly proclaim it. If you're ashamed of me, I promise you, Jesus is saying, I'll be ashamed of you. Some of you have told me never to mention your name from this pulpit. I don't always know the exact reasons, but I, I try to honor that. But if I were to say someone's name and honor you for who you are, for what you've done, that's honorable in front of uh, other people. This person has done this, this, and this. We, we do that. We'll, we'll honor certain missionaries, certain people that have done great things. And that person may sit in the audience and just beam with pride. Yeah, yeah, look at that. Said my name. I was told years ago, in fact, long before I became a pastor, he said, if you want to endear yourself to your people uh, and you want uh, them to compliment your sermon, he said, I'm not telling you to do this. He said, but I'm telling you it will happen. Say their name. They'll be the first ones in line to say, that was a great sermon. (laughs) Say their name. And that's what he said. The great, the most beautiful words that come out of a preacher's mouth are your name. Isn't that interesting? Our own pride. 
But I'll tell you this. That day when the roll is called up yonder, we're not going to break out in song. We sang our hymn for the day and how great thou art. But when the roll is called up yonder, when Jesus is there and I step up, when you step up, I want to see a big face on my Savior's face that says, he's with me. Lance Waldy, he's with me. Come on up here. As opposed to me standing there, it's my turn, my turn. And Jesus looking and saying, depart. I don't know you. How can we avoid such? By being bold enough to confess the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the prophesied Son of Man. He is my Savior. I say it loudly. I say it with boldness. He's the one I love. Well, when the Son of Man comes before the angels of God, He will confess you. And if you deny Him, He will deny you. Now, caveat. We know a very important person in the New Testament who did deny knowing Christ, don't we? This is not about a one-time thing. This is not about you looking back and going, I denied Jesus one day. I was a hypocrite. I was weak. I was spineless. That's not what he's talking about. That's forgiven. We know that, that Peter was forgiven. Paul, the apostle Paul, the great missionary, the greatest of all time, says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he said, I was a blasphemer. I slandered the name of Jesus. I was violent towards the church. And yet he found favor with God when he repented of his sins. So it's not about us going back and going, I was weak when I was 17 years old. I was weak last week. I denied Christ. I didn't say it when I should have. That's not what he's talking about. It's an ongoing, I'm done with him. He embarrasses me. Be encouraged by that. Verse 10. In addition, you don't confess him, he won't confess you. You deny him, he'll deny you. Verse 10, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it will be forgiven him. Well, that's interesting. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Do you know that we all, we are all born blasphemers against Jesus himself? There is a time in all of our lives where we deny him. We deny him up until the day when we receive him, right? No one receives Jesus when they're born. No one comes to know Christ in the womb. We are all born enemies of God. By the way, when it goes back, goes back to, to verse 5 there, when Jesus says, I warn you of whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. He's not talking about Satan. Satan doesn't cast anyone into hell. Satan himself is cast into hell. We see that in the book of Revelation. Only God has that authority. We deny this God... We deny him when we deny Christ. By the way, you cannot deny Jesus Christ without denying God himself. God is one, one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So why is it that we can deny the Son of God and be forgiven, but deny the Holy Spirit and we have blasphemed, we've slandered, we've cursed him, and we can't be forgiven? Why can we forgive one and not the other? Aren't they one? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's what you're thinking. We see people deny Jesus. We have examples in the Bible. We have our own example where we maybe didn't know enough about Jesus. Maybe we weren't ready to surrender our lives. But when we do surrender our lives or when we at least say that we have, something happens. 
the Holy Spirit comes upon us. In fact, we would say that those of us who are reformed in our theology believe that none of us will confess that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit has already baptized us. But there are many who maybe out of shame, peer pressure, a willingness to believe but who really don't believe, they're called hypocrites, they might say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And they come to church. They hang with us and they sing our songs. They give of their time. They give of their money. They're pretty nice people. We like them. They like us. But they're not of us. In fact, 1 John 2.19 says that John says they went out from us because they were never of us. Meaning they were with us. They had to be with us in order to go out from us. So they looked like us, but they left. That's called apostasy. It means to fall away. That means there are some people who make a claim to believe and love Christ, but they really don't. They either know they don't or they really haven't. And they will later leave, usually through persecution. And so Jesus is warning. You speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven you, as Jesus has shown us. But when you take the Spirit of God and you slander the Spirit of God, you can't be forgiven. What does it mean to slander the Spirit of God? I don't hear people going, I hate you, Holy Spirit. I hear more people slander the the, the Son of God. The whole context surrounds giving credit to what Jesus did to the devil. How did Jesus do what he did? Through the Spirit of God that indwelt him. The Spirit of God. How do we know anything about God that we know? Through the Spirit of God. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. How do I know that? First, I say Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. This is the words, or these are the words of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because you see in passages like Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, where the writer says, the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes the Old Testament. The Spirit of God is in the words of God. When we deny the words of God, we blaspheme, we slander the Holy Spirit. And this sin, my friends, is unforgivable. Let me take you through a little scriptural gymnastics. Hold your place and turn with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Go to the middle of your Bible, if you don't know where it is, and open right there in the middle. You're probably coming to the Psalms. Mightn't be in Proverbs. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, you're going to want to go to the right. If you're in Isaiah, you're still going to want to go to the right. Keep turning to the right. You're going to go, if you see Isaiah, the next one after Isaiah is Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. I want to give you a couple of examples in the Old Testament of what it means to slander the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is that that person of God that speaks to us, that teaches us. When the Spirit of God has spoken, we'll know the truth. We know it. Even unbelievers read the Bible and they know it's the truth. They don't like it, but they know it's the truth. To know the truth, listen to me. I sound like Charles Stanley. Now listen, now listen. To know the truth and outright reject the truth is the blasphemy of the Spirit. 
to know it, to have full knowledge. Before when we rejected Christ, we didn't know everything about Christ. Then we came to know Christ because we understood him. We know who he is. We know he's God in the flesh. We know he died on the cross. We know he was resurrected for our salvation. We know that. The Spirit of God teaches us these things. If we are to say, I know that's true, and now I'm, I'm done with it because I want to live life on my terms, that's the blasphemy of the Spirit. It's not about backsliding. It's not about being a Christian and deciding to go back and, back and, and get involved in silliness and stupidity. It's about a, a marked decision in your mind that says, I'm done. I know one person very dearly who has done that, very intimately, I should say, who has done that. And for him, I no longer pray. Why? Because of what God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. Mind you, Jeremiah is preaching to the Israelites and they are not listening. They know he's a prophet of God. God tells him in Jeremiah 7, 16, as for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift a cry or a prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. And he goes on to say, look at what they're doing, Jeremiah. They're not listening. Look over Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14. God tells Jeremiah, likewise, therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. Now, I'm reading these out of context, but in the context, God has done act after act. He's called them time after time to repent through this prophet. They know the prophet is from God, and they will not listen, and God says, I'm done with them. They have taken my full knowledge and said, we don't want to hear it. Says it again in chapter 14, verse 11. Same thing. So the Lord said to me, Jeremiah said, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine and pestilence. Jeremiah cries out, But oh, Lord God, look, the prophets are telling them, You will not see the sword, nor will you have famine. But I will give you lasting peace in this place. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, but Lord, the false prophets are telling them they're going to have peace. I have to pray for them, Lord. No, don't pray for them. In fact, he says in 15.1, the Lord said to me, though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. This is a, and, and by the way, this generation went into the Babylonian captivity. God expunged the sin from among them. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at a few more spiritual gymnastics issues. Go to Matthew. The parables of Matthew in chapter 13. You know what the parables are? They're also in Mark 4. But Matthew 13. Matthew 13, you see the issue of, of the, uh, um, the, the seed that falls on certain soils. The first seed falls on a soil and it represents people who never believe. They hear the gospel and they will not believe. A particular seed falls, next seed falls on this real shallow soil, springs up in belief, and then withers away because he has no root. The second, or the third seed falls into this particular soil that's got all these, these uh, rocks and, and uh, briars underneath, and it chokes out this seed, and it's dead by the time the harvester gets there. The last seed finds good soil, springs up, bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Those two middle seeds are those who believed, believed something, but something happened along the way. 
They stopped believing. They said, uh, Jesus was good when I was in vacation Bible school, but as an adult, he just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Won't you look over with me again? Let's look over at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, right before you get to James, let's see, it's right after Titus and Philemon. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. You ladies should have yours all marked up from the Bible study you've been doing over the past semester on Thursday mornings. I'm in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. The entire epistle to Hebrews is written to, to people who have, they're Jews, why it's called Hebrews. They were Jews and they had, they had renounced their Judaism for faith in Christ. But along the way, as many people do, they miss their religious ways. They miss Judaism. They miss all the ornate beauty or of feeling better after doing this, this, and this. I just feel better about myself after I've done a few things. Some people can't get used to God's grace. And so they're thinking about moving back and going back to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. He says in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God. I want you to note that word for tasted. They didn't eat it. It's like people going through a buffet. Eh, mm, I don't like that. Mm, don't like that. Put that back. Mm, don't, like, don't ever go to a buffet. People have done that to real buffets. But they do that with the word of God too. They like Jesus for, oh, that tastes good. Ooh, that's center. I didn't like that. I don't like that I heard that Jesus is actually sovereign, that there is a hell and he's not completely loved to where no one is going to suffer. This is the case of those who were once enlightened. They heard the good news. They tasted the heavenly gift. They didn't eat it, but they tasted it. And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. How can you be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and not be a Christian? By simply being among those who do have the Holy Spirit. By hearing the word of God, which is the spirit of God speaking. Sometimes unbelievers like it. They've tasted it. They've been partakers of the spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. The writer says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they again crucify to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. This means that there are some who say they believe, but they don't. We know they exist because we've met a few. And the little parable he says in verses 7 to 8 here perfectly illustrates it. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. So you plant a little garden out in your background. Rain falls on it. Crops grow. You got you some jalapenos. You got you some, some uh, you ever, salsa garden. You know, you got your jalapenos, got your onions, got your tomatoes. So what's the green stuff? You make that. Rain falls on it. It grows. It's good. You pick it. You grind it up. You have some good salsa. You, you put all that in the ground, though, and the rain falls on it, and nothing happens. What do you do to the garden? But you put it there. It's there. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless. Close to being cursed, it ends up being burned. That's the way it is with some people who claim to know Christ. They, have, they bear no fruit. They say one thing and do another. Go with me to the right. From Hebrews, you'll pass through James, and you'll get to 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and then you'll get to 1 John, and that's where I'm going. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Not the gospel of John, but the first epistle of John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. 
John speaks enigmatically, I would say, of, he says here, if, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, all sin leads to death, doesn't it? All sin leads to death. But that's not what he's talking about. If you see your brother committing adultery, say, pray for him or her. It's what he says. He shall ask God and it will be given. And he will ask God, God, wait a minute, say it again. He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. He's distinguishing between sins that we commit and we pray for and we find forgiveness in, restoration with God, and there is the sin that leads to eternal death. That's what he's talking about. And John is saying, I'm not saying you should pray for that guy. There's nothing you can do. I think he's talking about the blasphemy of the Spirit of God. So what is it? It is in the context of our passage in Luke. It is giving credit to Satan for something God has done. We do that today in the creation of the world. God created it. He did it in six days. Give glory to him. You may not, you may not understand it because you went to a university that said it took millions of years. It didn't. Give God the glory. If you're going to stand before God, he's going to ask you, why didn't you believe my word? Well, my professor, who's an atheist, told me otherwise. How about your pastor who believes it, told you, and you believe that? Or you just simply read the word of God and let the spirit of God say, God said it. He's not going to lead me astray. That's what I believe. Don't give credit to someone else for what God has done. Don't take credit for your life. Every breath you take is given to you by God himself. You are not a self-made man or woman. Not a self-made man. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how low you were when you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and you made yourself into something by God's grace alone. You are what you are. Don't take credit. That's blasphemy of the Spirit of God. He gave it to you. Give all glory to God. Don't give credit to the devil or anything or anyone else for something God has done. And ultimately, the blasphemy of the Spirit is ultimate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. It's not backsliding. It's you saying, I'm done with this. I'm finished. That might be today for some of you. You might be so angry. You might go away and say, I am done with that. Okay? You have that right. So what about those of you who might be thinking, I committed the blasphemy of the Spirit? Many do. I'll get many questions, or some anyway. And let me ward that off right now. If you are, listen to me, if you for one moment are worried, concerned in any way that you have perhaps blasphemed the Spirit of God, you haven't. The very fact that you are worried about it, concerned about it, means that you didn't. Because no one who outright says, I'm done with God, would ever be concerned about it thereafter. Maybe you walked away from the Lord. Maybe you've said some foul things and done some even more, some even more fouler things. And you're walking away from God. Here's, here's what he looks like to you. Come on. Come on home. You will find love and forgiveness with me. But if you have said, Jesus, I know who you are. I know you're the son of God. I know you're the judge of all mankind. I'm done with you. You have blasphemed the spirit of God. You will never come back and you will never want to come back. 
Jesus closes those final two verses in Luke. I wanted to put emphasis on those passages. I know it's a difficult passage. And so Jesus closes in verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about, how, about what you are to speak in your defense or what you're to say. Don't worry about who's going to kill you unless you fear God. If you fear God, don't worry about that. He has the power to cast into hell if you don't believe Him. You're confessing me before men. So when they bring you before the synagogues, that's before all the people in the city and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you're to say for the Holy Spirit, the one you haven't blasphemed, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now this is not a proof text for a pastor to say, I'm going to step up every week and let the Spirit of God speak through me without any preparation whatsoever. That's not what it's saying. No way, no how. This is in the context of a persecution, of harsh persecution. And you and I sit back, sometimes we think, what am I going to say to those? I believe in the Bible. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What am I going to do if some atheist comes up or skeptic comes up and starts asking me? You might read an apologetics book. You might learn a few things, but you're concerned about it. Or in our day, what if we do get arrested? What if they ask us, do you believe this, this, and this? Do you go to that church? Lord, what am I going to say? Jesus is saying right here, don't worry about it. You don't need to put an outline together. Let the Spirit of God speak through you. We see this in the early part of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came and Peter, bold as a lion, who had cowered to a little girl saying, I don't even know who Jesus is, just a few days prior, stands in the face of the people that killed Jesus and says, you're the one that killed the Lord of glory. And starts quoting from Joel chapter 2. How many of you could quote from Joel chapter 2? You could now because you've read it before. Apostle Paul stands before kings and governors, Festus and Felix and King Agrippa II. And he stand, stood before Nero, the emperor. And he pronounced and spoke the word of God. We don't see that he gives us a, a book, a handbook on how to preach in such circumstances. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Spirit himself gave him the words to speak and it's recorded in Scripture. Luke was there to record what Paul said, what he quoted. Folks, we have nothing to fear. And yet we live in a day when people live in fear. Okay, so they come invade us. So they take away our freedoms. The United States is not blessed by God. Oh, it has been blessed by God. But if it goes, it doesn't mean God has given up on you and me. We have been sealed with the Spirit of God. The, the Son of God shed His blood for us. I think we're pretty important in His eyes. Do good men and women die throughout the history of church? Do they die slowly and painfully? Were many of them chopped up? Did some of them get burned alive? Buried alive? Fed to the lions? Yes, 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 yes. But in a moment in time, they all just died. And in that instant, entered into eternal life with Christ. In that instance, they left this world of death and they entered eternity of life. That is the good news. How can you get it? It's this easy, folks. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's it. All I can do now is pray. Lord God, thank you.
that the message of salvation is that simple. We wretched sinners can believe in you and receive eternal life. Lord, we are, even though once we've come to know you, we still sin, you still forgive. I pray that it would be our task, our goal, to sin less every day, to know you more every day, to draw nearer to you every day, that we do nothing religiously. We only do it because we love you, because you loved us. May we go away today, Lord, bold as lions. Maybe we came in here sheepish. May our faith permeate us. We are not afraid of those who kill us. May we not be afraid of those who can kill us. That's all they can do. You have power beyond that. May we rejoice in that. May we rest in your comforting arms, trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross that saved us, rose again from the dead three days later. In that we rejoice. Now may we go forth stronger than ever in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Happy Lord God Almighty Day. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.